This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up to sun now, sir. Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. Let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. Today on the show, El Nino. It's officially here, but what does the weather event mean for Australian farmers? Well, over a billion dollars worth of food is wasted by Australians every year. Could getting rid of best before dates change that? And as we head into the warmer months, there will be plenty of summer fruit to grace your table. You'll hear more about which ones you'll see a lot of this summer. Enjoy it on your dessert or on your lychee daiquiri or... Or even in your fruit salad. I'm sure there's going to be enough to satisfy it. That's coming up. But first, Varroa mite. It's a pest that's dominated the beekeeping industry and the news in recent times. The mite weakens and kills honeybees, and it can also transmit viruses. It was first found in New South Wales more than a year ago, and efforts to eradicate it have resulted in about 30,000 hives being destroyed. But it's still spreading. The lack of success has prompted a change, with efforts to eradicate it shifting to measures to control it and live with the pest instead. But big questions remain about how it will work and how it will impact on the beekeeping industry and other agricultural sectors across Australia that rely on them. For many beekeepers who are facing the destruction of their bees and tough restrictions on businesses, it comes as a great relief. But for others, it's a bitter pill, as David Claughton reports. Phil Hannay is an entomologist and beekeeper on the New South Wales mid-north coast. He told Tina Quinn the change from eradication to management is a disaster. Especially the backyard beekeepers, which make up probably the major portion of this industry, are going to be devastated by this. It's happened too quickly. They've let it out to management. Uh, I think it's going to cause a lot of problems. We're going to lose a lot of bees. People don't realise the repercussions of the diseases that are coming. When you say the diseases, what do you mean? The varroa mite, when it feeds off the fat body of the bee, uh, it injects um, fluid into the fat bee for, for, for reasons. And that, in that fluid, there's viruses, of which are systemic in bees, and of course it'll continue on from bee to bee. It doesn't have to be bitten by the varroa mite a second time. Uh, and this is going to be a management problem. This is an early days problem they had in the US, but I don't think we can draw too much of a conclusion with what went on over there because our climate is completely different. I think we're going to see the varroa might be more prolific here than anywhere else. More prolific here than anywhere else? Well, that's my view. Oh, it's dry, it's wet, it's warm. Everything's there for it. The bees are active most of the time. They're not locked up in the wintertime in sheds because of the snow. They're out there on the job all day, every day, seven days a week. Phil Hannay's own business, supplying medical honey to the health system, is deeply affected by the failure to eradicate the varroa mite. I'm actually a uh, termite specialist. I've been involved with the honeybees for about 40 years. We started this research project into medical honey about five years ago. And it's this year we've started to turn it into a commercial operation. Uh, And the aim is to provide high-quality medical honey off plantations 
into hospitals and veterinary surgeons. Now, with the advent of the varroa mite, uh, using chemicals in the hives is probably going to prevent us from being able to do that. We'd still be able to collect the medical honey and sell it to the public, but no, I don't think the hospitals are going. It's probably to that end that my operation's going to come to a stop sometime after Christmas, I think. Another apiarist who's already lost everything is Cole Wilson from the Hunter Valley. It's been a long 15 months for him since Varroa was first discovered in his area. But he told Amelia Bernasconi he's up for the challenge of rebuilding his business. In Australia, we are a very innovative country. Um, we've got a lot of good researchers, a lot of good scientists. We'll start breeding programs to improve the genetics for Varroa-resistant bees. So I, I'm sort of pretty confident that probably Australia will be the leader in this, but we have a, a totally different climate and environment than what makes it easier for the rest of the world to live with it. Um, our bees keep breeding like 12 months of the year where the rest of the world, that, that doesn't happen. So that there will be a lot more sort of difficult challenges for us to live with it. Cole Wilson is calling on the government to provide low-interest loans to beekeepers so they can get going again. Scott Hanson, the Director-General of the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, says there's no change yet to the funding for the control program or compensation packages, but it is being considered now. He told Michael Condon the priority is to keep the varroa mite in New South Wales and to slow down the spread to other states. And research by ABES highlights how important that is. To let this mite spread freely across the country would cost the Australian economy $5.2 billion over the forward uh, 30 years. That same modelling says that there's significant reduction in their cost if you are able to suppress it and reduce the um, rate of spread. The big change is to get rid of the different coloured zones and create a suppression zone and a management zone only. That will allow riverina beekeepers with bees stuck in the almond pollination areas to move their hives, while beekeepers in other varroa hotspots in New South Wales will still face tough restrictions. The management zone is where there will be active on-ground activities to control the mite and to try to reduce mite numbers and to try to contain high um, infestation levels within that management zone. And it basically covers the Kempsey and Hunter and Centre Coast regions that have been the clusters that we've been dealing with up till now. The rest of the state, which includes those red zones that were in isolated areas, as well as the purple zones, which were the surveillance zones, are all now blended in with the previous rest of New South Wales blue zone to just make one zone, which is now called the suppression zone. That's Scott Hansen ending that report by David Clawton. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. You might have heard this week that Australia is officially in an El Nino weather pattern. While an El Nino declaration doesn't automatically mean we'll head into drought, nine of the ten driest winter spring periods in southeast Australia have occurred during El Nino events. And that's because these warmer and drier conditions can increase the risk of drought and bushfire. In fact, most of the major Australian droughts, such as the severe droughts of 1982, 1994, 2002, 2006 and 2015, all coincided with El Nino. 
Michael Condon asked Hugh McDowell, a senior climatologist at the Bureau of Meteorology, to explain what it all means. Well, we're now confident that the atmosphere has responded to those warm sea surface temperatures that we saw in the tropical Pacific. We've been seeing them for some time, where we see drier than average conditions across Australia. Drier than average and warmer than average too? That's right, thank you. Yeah, warmer than average conditions as well. El Nino brings both of those factors to, um, to large parts of Australia, and particularly the eastern part of the, part of the country. Now, it doesn't always mean drought, but a lot of the time it does. That's correct, yeah. Not every El Nino has meant drought, but um, the majority of them have. So we, we are concerned about that, and there are watch points across parts of the um, east of the country, and, and particularly parts of the east coast of New South Wales, where we're seeing some pretty serious rainfall deficiencies at the moment. We're seeing that already. I mean, we're seeing, I mean, in the Hunter Valley and on the north coast, people are saying we're already in drought. And it's September. That's right. right. There are serious to severe rainfall deficiencies there. In the last nine months, it's mostly been focused on the northeast, but in the last four or five months, it's been spreading further down the coast. And we've seen a pretty dry winter across the eastern side of the state. The state as a whole, not so much, because the western half of the state has still had some rainfall. we are getting there to some pretty low rainfall totals over a, a number of months. And it's just not not just New South Wales, El Nino potentially affect, it's mainly the east coast of Australia, isn't it? Yes, yeah, mainly the east of the country, so New South Wales, Queensland as well, but it does affect central parts, so it will start affecting um, South Australia and into parts of the NT as well, but less of an effect over the western side. Western side, though, we're also in a um, positive Indian Ocean dipole. And what does that mean? Well, it means dry and average conditions across large parts of um, Australia, the west, but also inland parts of the east as well. Senior climatologist at the Bureau, Hugh McDowell. With the El Nino Declaration has also come calls for assistance to prepare eastern parts of the country facing drought. Charity Rural Aid has already seen a 250% increase in calls for emergency drinking water deliveries, and they're seeing more demand for their buy a bail program too. CEO John Walters tells Megan Hughes they're calling for donations so that they can help deliver these services. The, the latest declaration, I guess, has, has probably just reaffirmed what um, people have been expecting is going to happen and have probably been really living through already up until this point. It, it's certainly been hotter than we, we'd normally expect for, for this time of the year. And we, at Rural Aid, we, we're really seeing over the, 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 the winter months a, a real increase in the demand for assistance. And we, we're really bracing for that to continue and to, to increase as we go into summer, uh, where it's only going to get hotter and drier. And is that assistance around drought and drought feeding? Uh, it, it very much is. Um, right now, there's been a, a real surge in demand for emergency deliveries of drinking water, and that's in, increased almost 250% in the last couple of months. So too, um, requests for fodder. But also um, our team of, of counsellors stand ready to, to help and, and provide emotional and wellbeing support to, to farming families. They're, they're based in rural communities. They understand those issues and challenges. And really importantly, they can see uh, producers on their properties and take the service to them rather than um, necessarily expecting it to be a conversation that 
that takes place in an office in a in an urban or or city environment. And in terms of your buyer bail campaign, have you had a lot of donations already sort of come in this year? Oh, look, buyer bail is 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 what um, so many people know rural aid for, and it's been an incredibly um, successful way of connecting the city to the country by default. It's it's through buyer bail that that people who who lived in rural, uh, in regional, and and often urban environments were able to make a contribution to an organisation like Rural Aid so that we could then get help and support to farming families. And it, it continues to this day and we're, we're really probably going to be, and, and not probably, but there, there's an absolute um, need um, right now that's emerging. And so we, we're um, very much asking the wider community to, to be generous again and to put, your, put its trust in Rural Aid again with a donation so that we can go to work doing the things that we do um, to support our farming families. And have you had many donations come in this year so far? Oh, look, it's it's certainly very welcome support. And what we've seen as we've been telling some of those stories about the situation that producers have in front of them and, and very much focused on just that need for drinking water at the moment. Like, as I mentioned, we've seen a, a 250% increase in the request for emergency drinking water, along with um, water infrastructure and particularly water tanks. Um, there's a real focus on that. And that certainly has resonated with the wider community that they've wanted to, to help address that problem. But I, th- I think the stories that are going to be told going forward are, are going to be those stories about how drought, assuming um, drought comes with El Nino, um, starts to unfold. Um, we're, we're seeing it already. It's very, very dry in a number of places. Parts of, of New South Wales in the, the northern rivers on the north coast, in the New England, um, down through the Hunter, and then way down south around Bega or, or already drought declared and conditions are worsening in those areas. It's always a challenge to source fodder and particularly in a year like the, the one we're experiencing right now, the, the floods from earlier in the year and late last year has certainly impacted the, the availability of fodder. So that's that's going to be a challenge that will, will not only be a rural aid challenge, but it'll be one that produces wherever they are that are seeking fodder that are going to have to, to manage. So we're, we're really aware of that. Rural aid CEO John Waters speaking with Megan Hughes. This is Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. Do best before dates dictate what food you buy? And maybe even when you throw it out? Well, currently supermarkets are making $1.2 billion annually from wasted household food. That's according to information gathered by the Australia Institute. The Institute said this gave supermarkets a strong incentive to resist policy changes and remove best before dates on products that did not need them. Senior economist Matt Grudnoff said consumers were concerned about waste and change was not happening fast enough. Well, what we found out is that people are really concerned about food waste and they want action to happen, but action isn't happening fast enough. And we think that's in part because the supermarkets have a big incentive um, not to act. We found that households waste about $19 billion a year in food um, and supermarkets earn about $1.2 billion profit on that waste. So they have an incentive to slow down or prevent change on waste from occurring. Many would say, though, that food is being wasted because they 
consumers let the use-by date expire or best-before date expire. What, what should they do in that situation then? Well, consumers are very keen for changes around labelling reform. 78% of consumers want changes in labelling reform. 72% want relaxed cosmetic standards. And these are some of the big problems with why food is being wasted. Um, There are cosmetic standards that supermarkets have. They won't sell uh, certain fruit and vegetables if they look a certain way. Um, And in the UK, they have relaxed their labelling and used-by standards Um, and um, they found that food waste has decreased there. So there's certainly something that we can do in Australia. Is it safe to relax use-by dates and standards? Absolutely it is. So this is not about having unsafe food consumed. Currently we have very strict standards, um, and those strict standards are adding to food waste. So could you give me some examples? Because, you know, products like leafy vegetables and that do have a very short lifespan, What products do you think need to to be changed? There's a lot of stuff around fruit and vegetables, um, but also packaged foods where uh, we have a very strict or traditionally we've had a very strict um, labelling standards. Other countries, as I said, like the UK, have relaxed those with no negative consequences, but have managed to reduce food waste. Well, on the supermarket side, cosmetic standards are in the control of supermarkets and we're asking them to relax those. One important area of food waste is at the farmer's end. They're required to only sell stuff that um, meets certain cosmetic standards to the main supermarkets um, and then they have to waste all the stuff that doesn't meet those standards. If supermarkets were to relax some of those standards, then we would see less waste at the farm level. When it comes to labelling, that's actually a government issue and um, really the government needs to sit down, look at what the UK and other countries have done um, and go through a process of working out whether or not those use-by dates are still relevant for Australia today. Australia Institute Senior Economist Matt Grudnoff speaking there with Eden Heininen. In response, Woolworths said it worked hard to reduce food waste and was not opposed to expiry date reforms. Cole said changing use-by labelling practices would need to involve an industry-wide approach with consumer education. Staying with supermarkets now, Coles has raised the price of milk by 10 cents a litre. Last week, the supermarket quietly lifted the price of one litre of milk from $1.60 to $1.70. Two litres went from $3.10 to $3.30 and three litre cartons went from $4.50 to $4.80. It's a long way from when the supermarket dropped the retail price to $1 per litre. It sounds like a good deal for farmers, but President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo, was cautious when welcoming the news. Oh, look, it, it is as long as it's flowing right down through the whole chain as well, uh, that it's not just profiteering by Coles, but also noting that uh, Coles is paying probably a fairly good farm gate price at the moment as it is, but for them to recognise that now everybody needs to make hopefully make some money out of this game and, and like I said, as long as it flows back down through the chain. So but, you know, dollar seventy is still cheap and it's just a pity they didn't do this ten years ago and we might have more milk in Australia. Does it lock in higher prices then for producers going forward? Well everyone's got a well the majority of people have a a contract only for twelve months, so up until the end of next June. Um now there might be the odd two or three year contract floating around, so that's still a bit hard to say as to what that means in the in the long term, but uh, in the short term, you know, it's it's 
It's certainly good. Australian dairy farmers President Rick Gladigo speaking to Warwick Long. Coles sent a statement confirming the price rise. It reads, We have reluctantly raised the price of Coles' own brand milk by 10 cents a litre due to ongoing cost increases in the supply chain. We don't take the decision to raise prices lightly, particularly because of the increased cost of living pressures faced by our customers. This is Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Milk might have gone up, but avocados are selling below a dollar in some places, and a punnet of berries is just a couple of dollars. Melbourne fruit and vegetable wholesaler Michael Piccolo says there's a huge oversupply in the market of some products after growers planted more when prices were sky high a few years ago. He spoke to Eden Heinonen about the fruit and veggie prices he's noticing at the markets. We're finding that it's not you know, overly busy in the sense of the retail side of things, but we're finding that with product being cheaper, I think people are a lot more you know, comfortable in, in purchasing. So I think in that side of things, it's been, it's been good. What, what items are you noticing are cheaper than usual? Uh, like working off this week, we've noticed avocados have come back a bit. Tomatoes, strawberries started to come back. The berry lines have come back a lot too. And a lot of the veggie lines are still cheap. You know, your carrots and your capsicums are pretty cheap still. So zucchinis are back in price. You know, your spuds and your onions are still very cheap. I did notice, sorry, that at the supermarket, berries were particularly cheap. It was a couple of dollars for a punnet, I, I think yeah. I saw. Yeah, they've come back. They've definitely come back. So we're, we're, doing, we're doing the same. It's, you know, probably below a dollar. I mean, below $2, sorry, for your strawberries. And your blueberries are pretty cheap. They're only like, you know, between 250 and $350. Why is that? It's just oversupply. It's just, there's, a lot, there's a lot around. So we find that, yeah, it's just, it's just once there's more, um, prices drop. Uh, it's avocado season now. I know a lot of producers are starting to, to harvest. They did predict that there would be an oversupply in the market. So that's obviously being reflected in the price at the moment. There is definitely an oversupply uh, from what we can see, you know, in the markets and with the growers. There's a lot of fruit coming from a lot of different areas. So we're finding a lot from Western Australia, um, parts of Victoria, you know, parts of Queensland. And when they're coming from so many different areas, it's a huge oversupply. So, you know, compared to probably last year, you know, they're, they're way down in price. Uh, what are farmers saying to you? I think they're concerned. <laughs> I think because... You know, the cost of production based on what they're actually receiving in price, um, they've been losing money. They've been losing money. So I think this is probably, you know, a downfall from on the growers' behalf because when the prices are so high, probably, you know, two to three years ago, a lot of them were planting more. So once you plant more and then, you know, two, three years down the track, you know, there's more, there's more produce and, you know, prices, prices drop. And and I've heard that people have planted more, but they've held off on even um, selling all of their produce because they know it will be an oversupply in the market. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's funny because with our, you know, with fruit and veg, it's perishable. So there's only so much that they can hold on to product for. But when the market's completely flooded with produce and, you know, you've got a lot of produce yourself, you have to move it because then obviously, you know, it's got an expiry date and it'll just go off. Uh, can certain items hold in cool rooms longer? Apples can for quite a apples, while, can't they? Apples can. Uh, we find, look, with avocados, it's probably not a product that they can hold for too long. 
because, you know, they, they're green and they cannot ripen them, but then, you know, they'll naturally ripen, and that's only probably a, you know, four or five-week process. So you can hold off for maybe, you know, you know, a month and a half to two months, but then if there's a lot of produce on the market, it's very hard to predict because you don't know where everyone's sitting at the same time. So it's, it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one to predict avocados. Melbourne Fruit and Vegetable Wholesaler Michael Piccolo speaking there. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, if the news that some Queensland mangoes might be in short supply this Christmas has got you panicking about your summer fruit spread, panic no more. Some other fruits have actually had a great growing season. And if you're open to some change, Abby Holter has put in the hard yards to find alternatives for your shopping list that are just as juicy as mangoes. She filed this report. It might be hard to believe, but Christmas is just around the corner. And if you're planning on a mango-topped pavlova this year, you may need to rethink your usual options. A shortage of supply brought on by a warm winter might mean it's time to give other tropical fruits a try, like sweet lychees. President of the Australian Lychee Growers Association and Bundaberg grower Derek Foley says last year's crop was record-breaking, so this season we'll see less fruit, but there'll be plenty in supermarkets and quality will be superb. It would appear from, say, Rocky North that the, the flowering is patchy, there's no doubt about that. While there is there's fruit up there, um, it won't be as in the volumes that it was last year. Last year was a bit of a record season for quite some years. From Rocky South, the jury's still out a bit uh, in the Nambour area, which is a very high-producing area, uh, just because they flower a little bit later. And, and even the Bundaberg area, that even though you know, the flowering is quite reasonable here, you know, it, it could well be a, an 80% season, for instance, in and around Bundaberg. It's early days, but um, while the crop will be back, there will be enough around to give those that are welded on to uh, eating lychees around the Christmas and New Year period uh, and the months uh, up into February. There will be good fruit around in the south. So, Can you speak on your own specific farm then? How is it going for you? Compared to last year, last year was you know, was the biggest year we've ever had. Uh, it was exceptional. You know, I'm hoping at this stage it might be around 80% is my guess at this stage. What do you say to lychee lovers for this summer season? Well, they're going to be about and uh, it's an exciting time. When the subtropicals, the exotic subtropicals get on the market, we know that it's a it's an increasing demand for these great pieces of fruit and uh, we encourage uh, everybody to support the lychee industry, support a farmer and enjoy it on your dessert or on your lychee daiquiri or, or even in your fruit salad. I'm sure there's going to be enough to satisfy it. Not too far from Derek's farm, peaches and nectarine grower Tess Winkler in Childers is looking to have a cracker of a crop this year. Yeah, the winter's been a little bit colder at night than usual, but the fruit is looking really good. So it's looking great so far. It looks like we'll get a little bit more crop this year than we did last year. Percentage-wise, what do you reckon this year? 100% of your usual crop, a little bit less? Yeah, it's looking pretty good. There's quite a bit of fruit on this year. It's going great so far, yeah. And the taste-wise, what kind of quality are we yeah, looking we at? Think, yeah, I think every year the, the taste of our fruit's usually really, really good. 
the uh, markets always say that they taste really well, they tell us. Of course, I'm sure they they do. They eat well. (laughs) They eat well, that's what they say. (laughs) I'm sure. And then so what would you sort of say to consumers this year when they're, you know, looking for fruit to put on their pav? What would you say? Buy peaches and nectarines. Yeah, well, from, from our little place there will be. It's looking pretty good as long as we don't get any storms or hail or, yeah, hopefully we'll have a good year. Stone fruit grower Tess Winkler ending that report from Abby Holter. And as a famous singer once said, all I want for Christmas is some summer fruits. Or it was definitely something like that. Maybe that wasn't quite right. (laughs) Anyway, that brings us to the end of Countrywide this week. I'm Bridget Herman. If you've tuned in on the radio, you can hear more on the ABC Listen app. And for other stories about your food and where it comes from, head to the ABC website. That's abc.net.au. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.